Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Dr. Rebecca Rendell. Dr. Rendell is an OCR athlete, but I wanted to talk today about her research, specifically how our bodies adapt to the heat and to altitude and how that impacts our performance. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find the information Dr. Rendell presents highly valuable. So let's tune in. Becky, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Very good. Thank you. How are you, Brian? I'm great. Thank you. First off, thank you for taking the time to join me today. I know you are busy with what you do work-wise, training-wise, and I know it's late there right now, so I really appreciate you taking this time. Nearly bedtime is okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to get you on here because you are an athlete, but more importantly for the conversation here is the research you do around sports science and especially around the um, environmental aspects of it, and I think it's a good conversation to have because we all train in different conditions, but then we travel to other conditions and there's, there's good and bad ways to kind of go about that whole transition. So um, kind of just let you dive in first and as far as introduce yourself, who you are, how you got into studying this direction, and we'll go from there. That's right. Yeah. So thank you. Um, um, I do a compete in OCR, so hopefully I'll be able to explain um, some of the research I do in the context that's helpful for endurance athletes um, and obstacle course racers as well, or anyone that's trying to train for any kind of endurance sort of sport. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up doing sport. Um, I've been a runner and a gymnast since since I could walk or before, and um, haven't stopped with them since. Um, but I, I did a degree in sport and exercise science, which is what we call it here in the UK. Um, maybe something more similar to kinesiology in the US. Um, I then followed that up with a master's and that was very specific. It was in something called human and applied physiology. So within sports science, you've got um, sort of psychology, biomechanics and physiology. I went down the physiology route. um, And what I really liked about it is the sort of um, outdoor environmental adventurous side of things. Um, So I did a lot of kind of Uh, learning about different environmental scenarios and how your body responds to them, whether at rest or in exercise, or even people who have to work in those environments. So that's things like um, altitude or hypoxia, um, exercise in the heat, exercise in the cold, uh, cold air and cold water, because they're actually quite different, um, as well as learning about some sort of diving physiology. And I found that really interesting, especially with uh, trail running and water sports and outdoor adventurous activities as well um, and I decided I was going to do a continue my research and my studies um, and I did my PhD um, in environmental physiology as well um, and that research was specifically looking mostly at um, heat acclimatization sort of warm weather training um, and combining different other areas um, or sort of uh, physiological stress things like dehydration as well as um, hypoxia or altitude and basically putting those all together and seeing how it affects our body but also how it affects our performance in different environments. So when it comes to heat you know we have two different aspects we either train in one condition and maybe we travel and go to another completely different environment or we live somewhere where there's four seasons and so you go from your winter spring summer and it takes time to acclimate to that so I guess first off, 
what can we do, especially in that transition from like spring, winter, spring, summer, what can we do to help kind of transition ourselves to getting used to that heat and humidity that shows up all like just kind of all of a sudden sometimes? Yeah, and it's, it certainly depends on where you live, like you say there. Um, for us in the UK, it's not very, very dramatic. We're very mediocre weather, but I've, I've seen the diff- drastic seasons that you have uh, in most of the country there. And you do, it, it's definitely going to affect you physiologically and, and performance-wise and also perceptually. Um, so there's different aspects uh, of, of the adaptations that are going to happen, whether that's um, things to do with your heart rate, things to do with your temperature, your sweating, um, but also things to do with your perceptions of those. Um, similar to like, if you if you move somewhere, you might have different perceptions and they might change over time as well. Um, and some of these adaptations happen in different time courses. So some of them are gonna happen very quickly. Some of them are gonna stay for a long time. Some of them are gonna, are gonna get lost very quickly. And other ones are gonna come back very quickly. Um, so you might have some sort of um, physiological memories sort of um, that might help some of those come back or be re- reintroduced um, if you have that stimulus again. So really it is quite specific and we can talk about that in more detail about what happens in different kinds of situations or different kinds of stresses. Um, And as well as it being specific to the response, it's also specific to the individual. How I'm gonna adapt to a stimulus is gonna be different from how you will. Um, So really it's not one size fits all and and you have to be quite um, cautious, but also sort of tuned into your own body and also your own perceptions. How does hydration play into that when it comes to be adapting to the heat? Yeah, so when you are performing in the heat, you want to be hydrated um, because that's going to um, affect uh, your performance by, if you're too dehydrated or hypohydrated, it's gonna affect um, your blood volumes um, and that can negatively affect your performance. So when you're actually doing the event itself, you want to be um, suitably hydrated. You definitely don't want to be overhydrated um, because you might be at risk of something called hyponatremia, uh, which is where, where there's too much water um, and that can be life-threatening. Um, so you don't want to be overhydrated. Um, and while dehydration might be beneficial in some aspects, um, for example, you're lighter um, and you might be able to kind of go faster in some aspects. Um, and there is evidence of people sort of winning marathons at very light weights from when they started because they've sweated a lot during that time. Um, but in order to achieve your optimal performance that you, you do need to be hydrated. Um, but when you're thinking about training, one of the things I did in my research um, was looking at whether we can add dehydration as an extra stressor to drive the adaptation. So can does our body react more? Does it respond to a greater extent if we give it more stress? So if we train in the heat, but also add dehydration, um, can we um, either increase the rate at which the, the adaptations come? Can they happen faster so we don't have to do it for as long? Or, or do they um, adapt to a greater extent? So that was one idea we had um, in our research. And the kind of the science behind that is that um, it, it sort of stresses some hormones in your body, um, which um, react by um, getting you to uh, increase your blood volume or your plasma volume. And that's helpful for performance. We did the research and um, it wasn't anything um, substantial. I mean, all, all performance research, you're looking for small gains and 
you know, you need to get everything right to be able to achieve those increases in performance. Um, but of course, we do this in the, this in the laboratory uh, where we control everything so we can actually understand whether what we're changing is what's influencing performance. Um, and while there wasn't any major increases in performance, there, it also wasn't um, bad. You know, we, we didn't find that being dehydrated. This is only a moderate dehydration, about sort of two and a half percent body mass loss. Um, you can you can find that out yourself if you if you weigh yourself before and after training, and just account for how much you've drank or gone to the loo. Um, you can work out what your sweat rate is. Um, so if you look at um, your body mass loss, your sweat rate, your whole body sweat rate um, is what that's equivalent to. Um, then you can see sort of how much you should be drinking, maybe um, how dehydrated you're getting, um, and at these the dehydration levels that we investigated, which was about two and a half percent body mass loss. Um, people weren't doing worse. They weren't adapting less to training in the heat. Of course, when they did the performance test, they were hydrated, but during the sort of five or 10 days that we had them exercising in the heat for the heat acclimatization studies, um, it, it wasn't kind of deleterious. Yeah. Okay, very cool. When it comes to becoming acclimated in the heat, what, like, what changes happen into the body to allow us to, like, beginning of the summer, it's awful. By middle, end of summer, you're feeling better in the heat. Like, what happens to the body during that? Yeah, I probably should have said that at the start. No worries. <laughs> so, so there's, there's some um, key adaptations that happen. Um, one of the, some of the first ones that happen are the cardiovascular changes. So things like your heart rate. Um, if you were doing the same exercise... Um, at the beginning of spring, you went and did the same workout, your heart rate might be quite high. If you did that same workout after you've been training in the heat for a few weeks, um, then your heart rate would be lower for the same, for the same intensity exercise. Um, and that's a good thing. It means, it means you're getting fitter. That same thing happens with endurance training. So a lot of the heat acclimation um, adaptations are similar to endurance training. Um, and that's why a sort of endurance trained athletes have already had this partial adaptation to the heat. So the first thing is sort of cardiovascular. You get changes in your, your blood flow as well. You're gonna, um, your skin blood flow is gonna change um, to help you thermoregulate better. Uh, we lose heat by bringing the blood closer to the surface um, so we can cool down. Uh, another major way we change um, or we try and cool down is by sweating. Um, that's probably the biggest, the biggest heat loss. Um, for humans. Um, so sweating is a good thing. You want to sweat because um, that's how you lose heat. Um, I see people in the gym who are just wiping sweat off their face, off their body, and, and that's not going to be useful. You need it to evaporate. And that's how we lose the heat when it evaporates. If you're just dripping on the floor, wiping off, that's not useful. You're just getting dehydrated. Um, so, so sweat, sweat's good. And so when you adapt to heat, you're going to sweat more and don't worry about that that's a good thing and you probably will sweat earlier as well um eventually what happens is your your core temperature goes down so at rest but also during exercise um your core temperature will be lower which means you have a greater capacity to store heat um so basically you can you can do more before you get hypothermia before you get too hot um <clears throat> other things happen to your blood so you're going to have an increase in the watery part of the blood, the plasma volume, um, and that can do things like increase cardiac output, which is how much blood's going around your body, um, and that can improve things like your VO2 max or your VO2 as well. 
Then there's lots of smaller changes that happen to the hormones in your body um, and things like heat shock proteins. Um, and um, it does also stress out a few um, sort of molecular uh, responses. Uh, and that goes down sort of like the thermotolerance route is what we call it. Um, so rather than having these big whole body adaptations that are quite obvious, there's going to be these smaller changes that might be on, on a, a smaller level that you don't notice in your body. Um, but perhaps when, you're, when you go back in the heat, um, they might switch on a bit quicker. Um, and you might be able to tolerate um, some, some heat uh, better before you get heat illness. That's what we're really trying to avoid. Aside from the performance aspects, what we're trying to avoid is, is heat illness, heat stroke, and heat exhaustion mainly. Um, have I missed any? I, I think that's the most of them, yeah. <laughs> Perceptual stuff that's going to change too, um, and that really is key. Um, you're gonna we we measure things like um, your RPE or your rating of perceived exertion. Um, people use that for training. Hopefully, um, some of you have heard of that before, um, and that's really useful because it takes into account lots of different things. It takes in all the information your body's giving it, and you come up with this, a number that's that represents how hard you're working. Um, and that might change with heat acclimation, but also we can look at that more specifically and, and um, measure your, your thermal sensation or your thermal comfort. Um, and those might change as well. So like you were saying in your, in your question, um, those perceptions might change more gradually um, over the season um, as you start to kind of become aware of your adaptations that are happening physiologically, um, but also becoming more accepting of them perhaps. Um, because, uh, you know, you might get really sweaty in a few weeks and, and that might be off-putting to you. You might think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really responding to the heat here and um, I don't really want to be sweaty. But within time, you'll, you'll perceptually get used to that change and, um, and you'll be more kind of accepting and comfortable in the heat. Um, and everything will just sort of become easier as well. So these things happen at different rates. Um, if you go out of the heat, they're going to... They're gonna, you're going to lose them. Um, you lose them relatively quickly, a couple of weeks, but they can be reintroduced pretty fast. So that's what happens to us in the UK because it's never very hot here. So if we specifically go and do some warm weather training, um, maybe we go on the conservatory with a radiator on in the sunshine, and <laughs> that's as good as it gets. Um, or if you're lucky, you, can, you go in a heat chamber or you go on, go on holiday to Spain or somewhere. Um, but another... But, what happens when you come back is they disappear again. Um, so we have to find ways of, of keeping them going. So some people do other alternative strategies. So you can do things like um, go in a sauna. It's going to be passive. You're not going to be exercising as well. Um, so when you are doing um, training in the heat, you want your, your skin temperature to be high, but also your core body temperature to be high. So ideally, you want to be exercising in the heat, not just sitting in it. You can do things like sit in hot water as well, um, but that's going to be a bit more complicated because of the hydrostatic effects of sitting in water because it changes the blood volumes in your body and it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, but yeah, there are, there are alternatives and there was, there's ways to keep it going um, and you'll probably get more used to it over, over the season. When it comes to heat illness, what? So to control temperature, re-sweat, we do all these different things. When it comes to heat illness, what's happening in the body or what's not happening that causes us to get to that heat exhaustion, heat stroke point? Yeah, it's, it's um, again, it's quite individual. For example, you might have somebody who 
So if our normal body temperature is about 37 degrees Celsius, and I think that's maybe about just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm going to talk under. Just under. <laughs> yeah. So normally we're about 37 degrees. Um, and when we do heat acclimatization or heat acclimation training, we, we aim to be about 38 and a half. So that doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah, one and a half degrees increase. Um, but that's enough for these adaptations to be happening. And you are pretty hot and sweaty. I've, I've seen a lot of people at that temperature and they are hot and sweaty. Now, some people can get to 40, 41 degrees um, and they don't have heat illness. Other people can be at um, 38 and a half and do suffer from heat illness. So there isn't a specific temperature um, that's been looked into quite a lot. Um, but it it doesn't really happen like that it's a combination of things and some of those might be quite um underlying but the things you have to look out for and there are differences between heat stroke and heat exhaustion um heat stroke is is, is more life-threatening that's when you're going to lose consciousness um and they're, they're more severe cases and in those cases you people tend to be a bit more dry um their skin's sort of hot and dry whereas in heat exhaustion you're just a bit dizzy um, a bit sick but you're still sweating it's when you kind of run out of those thermoregulation measures that we have to, to try and keep us cool that's when it kind of all falls apart and we get um, we faint or pass out that's sort of what you're looking for um, hydration helps you want to call people as quick as possible put them somewhere cool try and call them down that's going to be the way the way to help them okay what can we do I know you mentioned saunas, hot water. Is there anything else like you can think that we can do training wise when we're going from a climate that we live into, like if someone's in the Northeast and coming to Arizona for a race that it's just going to be warmer that they aren't used to. Um, like what can you do for just knowing you're going to have like one or two races, maybe one time a year um, to kind of adapt to that? Or is there a really a good way to even do that? Yeah, if, if you know you're going to compete somewhere hot, you should definitely try and do something to, to help it. One, to avoid heat illness, but two, to because to, your performance will be affected um, if, you're, if you're not um, acclimated to it. So there's things you can do um, kind of chronically, like long-term, if you have a couple of weeks or days, um, then you can try and heat acclimatize. And that's gonna be the best thing to do physiologically because your, your body is actually changing. Um, then there are other, ways, are other ways that you can call, which I'll talk about in a second, um, if you don't have that much time. Um, so if you had some time, then you would try and exercise in a, in a hot place. You try and get hot um, for maybe 60 to 90 minutes a day for five to 10 days. That's what you would try and do. Don't try and do like your really intense sessions in the heat because they're just not going to go very well. But if you have some sort of long, slow sessions, um, then maybe you could try and do them indoors with a radiator on, with more clothes on, go and do your run, work out hard, and then get straight in a hot bath. It's really uncomfortable, um, but some people have done some research into that. To try. So basically you wanna, you wanna be hot inside your body, but also hot on your skin. That's what you're trying to, uh, trying to um, simulate. Um, if you can't do that um, at all, if you don't have a sauna even, um, even just to get yourself perceptually ready for it, it's not going to be like a sauna. And of course, it's going to be feel slightly different depending on whether you're going somewhere that's hot and humid or somewhere that's hot and dry. The main difference is um, because of your sweating. If you're in somewhere that's hot and humid, 
you will be sweating, but your sweat can't evaporate. So your skin sort of becomes saturated or, or sometimes your, your sweat glands can actually get blocked. Um, so you won't be able to cool down as much. And that's why it's a bit kind of more difficult in hot and humid places. Um, so if you can't do heat climatization before or heat acclimation, acclimatization is the word we use when it's natural acclimation is what we call it in the lab. Um, if you can't do that, instead you can do some kind of pre-cooling or per-cooling. Per-cooling means during the event. Um, so pre-cooling wise, um, I think the favored method really is having things like ice slurries. So if you're gonna ingest a cold slushed up drink, um, that way you can get some carbohydrates and electrolytes in there as well. Um, but you're also cooling sort of from the inside um, rather than sitting in cold water or putting on an ice vest. Those are other options. But what they're doing is, for example, if you think um, about getting into a, into a cold bath or having a cold shower, your skin is gonna pick up that sensation pretty instantly and your body is gonna react to that. So what happens then is when you get cold, you, you basically dilate, your blood goes away from the surface um, and that's not actually gonna help you cool down because that's a protective mechanism that tries to keep you warm when you're cold. So some of those physiological responses will actually be the opposite of what you want, even though putting something cold on your skin or sitting in cold water will help draw heat out the body um, by conduction. Those things will help, um, but they're not the best physiological responses, unlike something like heat acclimation where your body is trained to, to respond better. Um, you can do things like wear ice vests. Um, the thing that that limits though is if you're wearing an ice vest, which has got, um, like phase change material close to the skin. Uh, so basically the heat from your body is gonna change it from a solid to a liquid and you're gonna lose the heat and the, the substance is gonna take the heat. That's how it works. Um, but if you're wearing like a vest, for example, it means your skin um, isn't reaching the surface. So the, um, the heat can't evaporate, your sweat can't evaporate, you can't radiate the heat from the skin surface. So you won't be able to cool down so well that way even though the conductive effect will be helping. So really it depends on the situation. If you, for example, you were covered, like you had to wear um, a lot of clothes, like for example, firefighters or something, they might choose to wear an ice vest because they can't evaporate the heat under all their clothing. Um, but if you're gonna just be running in shorts and a vest, um, maybe, maybe an ice vest isn't the best idea to have on beforehand. Some of these procedures take maybe 20 minutes beforehand, but you have to think about what you're going to do with your warm up. You still want your muscles to be warm because if you're putting something cold against the skin, um, then it's going to cool down the, the muscles and the nerves and those things are going to be bad for performance, um, even if you are cooler. So it's sort of like a trade-off when you need to work it out along with everything else that's going into the mix. All of this performance stuff is so integrated, you know, when did you eat? What did you eat? <laughs> did you sleep? All these things are going to um, affect everything as well. So they're sort of the main, the main options you have for pre-cooling that, that isn't um, heat acclimation. Okay, thank you. Let's take a quick break to talk about Venga CBD. CBD does amazing things to help with recovery, decreasing pain, decreasing inflammation, and improving sleep. But there's so many CBD companies, it's hard to know the difference between all the different ones, who's better, who's worse, and really what quality you're getting. 
That's why I love Venga. It's created and engineered by athletes for athletes. And not only is it made for athletes, but because of that, they use high testing procedures to make sure it's high quality, to make sure it has the amount in it that says it has, and to ensure that it's THC free. They also use a nano emulsion technology, which allows it to be absorbed into your system better than most products. If you already take CBD, I encourage you to at least give Venga CBD a try and see if you notice the difference between what you're taking and Venga's product. And there truly is no risk at giving Venga a try because they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. So head over to Venga Endurance. How do you spell that? V-E-N-G-A Endurance.com and check out their full line of products and enter code GETYOURFIX20 at checkout to get 20% off your first order. You can also get a link to Venga as well as all of my other partners at getyourfixpt.com slash partners. And now let's get back to our conversation. You've also done some research on elevation as well. Is that correct? Yeah, in combination with heat. Okay. Rather than altitude on its own. Okay. How does that change things as far as the altitude with the heat? Yeah, so we wanted to look into it because uh, people go to places that are hot and high. I'm sure you can think of some places in Colorado that are hot and high. Um, And people either go there because they're high, probably, or they go there because they're hot, um, if they're from somewhere cold. Um, And they seem to ignore the other the other reason uh, the other stressor that they haven't gone there for um but really you can't ignore it because it's it's going to be affecting you every day um so it's already happening but also we thought maybe we could get the best of both worlds you know people do altitude training um some people it works very well for some people it doesn't um and we know that heat acclimation happens pretty quickly um altitude um, adaptations to altitude happen um a bit slower but they might last a bit longer, some of them. Um, but again, it's also very specific to the individual um, and depends on what kind of where you're going, what training you're doing, whether you're sleeping at high altitude and training at low, or whether you're doing both high or, or what, or for how long it's, and what actually it's all, it's all, there's a lot of different combinations. Um, so we wanted to know if you were if you could get the best of both worlds. So when I, when I say that, I mean, can you get some of the best physiological adaptations? So some of the benefits from heat is this increase in the plasma volume, that watery part of the blood. Um, can we get that? But can we also get an increase in red blood cell content, um, which is what you get from altitude? Um, that's sort of what it's known for, the increase in the red blood cell concentrations, um, which is what um, hypoxia drives that adaptation Um, and both of those are very important for endurance performance Um, the thing in with altitude is that you often lose plasma volume which is the bit we get in heat Um, so can we counteract that loss of plasma volume by adding in some heat Um, so increase red blood cells but also increase plasma volume and they're sort of the main questions um, for the combination for the combination of heat and altitude Um, Obviously, these are very stressful environments and they will affect your 
your training intensity. Um, but the, the other thing is you, you might be doing these, you might be going to a camp, a training camp close to competition. You might be preparing um, you know, in your tapering phase. So actually you don't want to be training mechanically very, very hard. Um, um, instead, if you can get your heart rate up um, by doing less work because you're in a hot environment, maybe that's good. Um, and if you can sleep um, at altitude, um, perhaps that will help with your, your red blood cell content. So uh, in, in the research that I did, we uh, created something that was more akin to that. So sleeping at altitude. Uh, so we had them in altitude tents for eight hours a night because we don't have any mountains in the south coast <laughs> of England. Um, so we slept in them. You know, you can rent them out for a month. It's, they're commercially available and they're not hard to get at all. Um, you just plug them in and turn them on and sleep in the tent. Um, so I got those for my participants. Um, and you sort of want to be sort of two, two and a half thousand meters high. Um, and you're going to have a lower partial pressure of oxygen at, at that height, um, or that elevation. Um, so we did that at night. And then during the day, we trained in the heat for 90 minutes. Um, and that's what we're looking for. As sort of like an optimal strategy for somebody who wasn't living um, in a place like that but it could also um, replicate somebody who was living at a high altitude and going down to a bit lower to train also in the heat um, so what we found was the heat acclimation still happens that was good um, it probably wasn't a long enough time period to get some of the the altitude adaptations that we were hoping for uh, we did this for like 11 days um, because one of the drawbacks of altitude training is it takes a bit longer, uh, sometimes weeks. Um, so we were hoping that maybe some of the stimulus might actually increase the, the rate of the altitude training, um, but it wasn't really enough. Um, that's probably because we didn't have a very large dose, you know, eight hours a night um, of sort of two and a half thousand meters um, isn't really enough um, over 10 days, 11 days um, to, to make those changes. But if you've got longer than that, um, then you're probably going to have some, we didn't lose the plasma volume effect. So that was good. Um, yeah. Another aspect of the research was look, we were looking at performance in um, normal um, sort of sea level uh, cool temperatures as well, rather than looking at performance at altitude or at, in a hot environment. When you look, or I guess what was, knowing the changes that happen at altitude and with heat, um, what was your purpose and what were you looking for to see what would happen at the sea level part? Yeah. So if you think about altitude training, um, people, you know, it's quite popular. Um, people think that they should train at altitude um, and their sea level performance will be improved. And that's because some of these lasting effects to the red blood cells, um, which may sort of last maybe three months or so, um, possibly. Um, so, you train in one environment and the adaptations help you compete in another environment. So when the stress is no longer there, when you're no longer at altitude, people don't really do that for heat. They train in the heat only if they're going to go compete somewhere hot. You don't hear about people in America training in the heat for a race in England <laughs> for the World Championships last year. You didn't hear of anyone doing that, I expect. Um, but as I said sort of earlier on, um, a lot of the adaptations are 
pretty generic. Um, they happen with endurance training normally, you know, changes to the heart rate, the substrate, so what fuel you're, you're burning, uh, changes to your lactate threshold, your VO2 max. These things are, are generic endurance adaptations, especially this plasma volume one. Um, so we thought perhaps, you know, if these things are being improved, why, why won't they work? Why won't they be carried over to when it's not that hot anymore? And also, if you're sort of competing in somewhere that's maybe 20 degrees, like it is here, um, if you're if you're running hard in that environment, and maybe it's also quite sunny, uh, maybe there's not a lot of wind, um, then you're still going to get hot. You're still going to reach the same core body temperatures as you do if you're just having a jog in in 40 degrees Celsius. Um, so you know your body is still in the same under the same strain. Um, so some of those thermal adaptations, the, the changes to temp, body temperature, heart rate, sweating, skin blood flow, they might also actually become useful because you're exercising hard. So that's, this topic's been kind of explored um, for a few years. It's been, there's been more and more studies in the last sort of um, five years, including um, a few from, from our lab. Um, and, and we thought that it, it, it it had potential um, and we did this heat heat acclimation studies where we um, exercised in the heat for 90 minutes a day and we got quite warm to about 38 and a half degrees and we made sure that the the stress um, of the heat was maintained so quite often what happens is um, some people exercise at the same intensity in the heat each day but as you adapt that intensity is going to be relatively easier so what we do is we control it by the temperature of your body. So I, I would ask my participants to exercise always at the same core temperature rather than always at the same pace, um, heart rate or anything like that. Um, so that we know that they're always getting this strong stimulus to adapt. So we do that for about 10 days. Um, and we looked at performance in a, in a time trial, um, these endurance athletes. So we tested them with a, a cycling time trial. Um, uh, uh, for sort of uh, half an hour and um, the performance wasn't improved yet um, so there's still some way to go on that it's still pretty much unclear whether it works or not there's the potential there's the theory there but uh, the evidence I, I wouldn't say is very strong yet we've we've tried um, and it's not sort of obvious um, but it's not again it's not making it worse so if you think maybe your race might be warm, you know, you go to Europe somewhere and they have a heat wave and instead of it being 20 degrees, it's 27, then maybe you should do it anyway because it's not going to make it worse. Yeah, definitely. Anything in your research that is, super, is really important for endurance athletes to know that we haven't discussed yet? Oh, um, well, there's a lot of things... I think that are specific to people and as I said sort of a bit earlier it really is very integrated you know you can you can do the best sort of heat acclimation program possible but if you're not sleeping properly you're not eating properly um, you're not doing things right on the day of the event um, then it's not going to be worth it and it comes with risk, you know, I've put a lot of people through these sessions and sometimes they're not very nice. Um, 
they might not be very hard work in terms of the actual exercise that people are doing, but they are very uncomfortable. And sometimes if you haven't prepared well, you know, when we, when we do these experiments, we control a lot of things. They don't have any alcohol or caffeine or anything. But if you're just having normal life and maybe you're not taking it too seriously, but you're having a go, um, then you might do something that's going to um, interfere with it. So really you need to like listen to your body. And if, if you're not, if it's not feeling right, then you need to stop doing it um, because the, there are real risks that come with this kind of training. Um, um, and and the thing about endurance athletes is they're very good at ignoring those those feelings. <laughs> um, some of the um, of my colleagues uh, actually did an experiment looking at um, the effect of competition um, in performance in the heat um, and whether that extra competitive stimulus um, it, it is um, it overrules the information that your body is giving you about how, how hot you are. You know, we hear about people in in marathons, in um, high level triathlon competitions, who um, just sort of fall apart, and you see them crawling over the line, or people in the military who who unfortunately um, don't survive because they've pushed it too hard because they are experts at overruling their behavioural. Um, information um, because they're very competitive or, or they value what they're doing um, very highly um, so the people who are putting themselves in this kind of situation are also the people who are, are vulnerable to to being more at risk um, because of their competitive streak <laughs> um, so maybe you need somebody else around to tell you when to stop as well. <laughs> yeah these sessions aren't on extreme though. They're not, they're not maximal sessions at all. Um, uh, but, but you know, you, people get heat illness um, at, at lower temperatures that then people experience on a regular basis. So there's nothing to say that there's not something underlying that you don't know about already um, that you might be at more at risk. So I would just urge some caution. Yeah. <laughs> that is great advice right there. Yeah. <laughs> someone's curious about more information, if someone just wants to follow you and your awesome training that you're posting, where can people find you? Um, so I have a, if you're interested in my research, um, I have a staff profile page at uh, the university I work at. Uh, so I, I teach, um, I'm a lecturer or professor as you call it in America, um, at Bournemouth University. Um, my name's Dr. Rebecca Rendell. Um, you can find my publications on there and read them and my contact information is on there as well uh, for any of my research. Um, you can follow my training um, on Instagram. I'm at the Runner Bean UK. Um, at the moment I'm just going running nice places um, on the seaside where I live on the cliffs but also I've got a rig in my garden so um, I'm pretty excited about that at the moment. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you getting on here and talking about your research. You're welcome. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation on Highly Functional. Before I go, I want to talk to you about my rope climb training program. In order to climb a rope efficiently and effectively, you need both strength and proper technique. If you have one without the other, it's going to be a lot more difficult to climb you're going to use a lot more energy and you have more chance of failing. So if you want to be more efficient with your rope climbs in order to have more chance of success at your next race, pick up my rope climb training program. 
you can check it out at getyourfixpt.com courses, along with all my other online programs. Thanks again for tuning in today. And now it's time to go out and be highly functional.